To get this episode of Forensic Tales ad-free, please visit patreon.com slash Forensic Tales. Forensic Tales discusses topics that some listeners may find disturbing. The contents of this episode may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. In May 2001, the entire country was rocked by the disappearance of Washington, D.C. intern Chandra Levy. Chandra's story had everything it needed to become a media sensation, a missing young female, a rumored affair with a married congressman, and a promising intern. But Chandra Levy wasn't the only young federal employee whose life was cut short in Washington, D.C. Less than two years before Chandra Levy disappeared, 28-year-old Joyce Chang mysteriously vanished after a night out with friends. Even after years of investigating, her sudden death remains a mystery. This is Forensic Tales, episode number 167, The Joyce Chang Story. Welcome to Forensic Tales. I'm your host, Courtney Fretwell Ariola. Forensic Tales is a weekly true crime podcast covering real, spine-tingling stories with a forensic science twist. Some cases have been solved with forensic science, while others have turned cold. Every remarkable story sends us a chilling reminder that not all stories have happy endings. As a one-woman show, your support helps me find new compelling cases, conduct in-depth, fact-based research, and produce and edit this weekly show. As a thank you for supporting the show, you'll get early ad-free access to weekly episodes, shout-outs and episodes, priority on case suggestions, and access to weekly bonus episodes. To support Forensic Tales, please visit patreon.com slash Forensic Tales, or simply click the link in the show notes. You can also support this show by leaving a positive rating with a review. Now, let's get to this week's episode. In the summer of 2001, the disappearance of Capitol Hill intern Chandra Levy captured the entire country's attention. 24-year-old Chandra Levy, an ambitious young woman determined to pursue a career in Washington, D.C., mysteriously vanished without a trace. Her disappearance dominated the media for months as rumors swirled about her reported affair with an older married congressman. Her murder is still considered one of Washington's most famous unsolved crimes. But Chandra's disappearance wasn't the only one in this part of Capitol Hill. While most of the country was fixated on the Chandra Levy case, another young woman from Washington, D.C. mysteriously disappeared. Her name is Joyce Chang. Thirteen months after Chandra Levy was last seen on May 1st, 2001, the body of 28-year-old Joyce Chang was discovered in a remote section of Rock Creek Park, the same park where Chandra Levy's body was found in May 2002, and a location less than four miles away from Joyce's Washington, D.C. apartment. A hiker with his dog discovered what looked like a human skull in the woods and immediately called the police. 
When the police arrived, they noticed that the skull was halfway down a densely wooded hill and far away from any of the park's paths. So it wasn't an area easily seen from any walking trail. But because the remains were only bones, they had to then be sent to the forensic lab for identification. Through dental records and DNA, the police determined the remains belonged to a woman named Joyce Chang. Joyce was last seen on January 9, 1999. She had grown up as one of four children to Taiwanese immigrant parents in Chicago. At the time, she was working in the general counsel's office of the Immigration and Naturalization Service in Washington, D.C., and she shared a lot of similarities with Chandra Levy. She attended Smith College, a prestigious New England women's college, where she was student government president, and graduated from Georgetown University Law School in 1995. After college graduation, she started working for Congressman Howard Berman as an immigration advisor. By her late 20s, Joyce was becoming a rising star on Capitol Hill. Her future was as bright as ever, just like Chandra Levy. But despite their similarities, her disappearance didn't get the same attention as Chandra's. On the day of her disappearance, Saturday, January 9th, 1999, Joyce kept busy with her usual weekend routine. Her weekends typically consisted of getting an extra work between hanging out with friends. The first thing Joyce did that morning was chat with her younger brother, Roger. She was about to head out the door to start her day while Roger was just waking up. Joyce and her little brother shared a basement apartment on Church Street in Washington, D.C., Like his sister, 26-year-old Roger also worked in politics. He kept himself busy by working closely with the former Assistant Secretary of Housing and Urban Development and former Governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo. After chatting with her brother for a couple of minutes, Joyce headed to her office at the Immigration and Naturalization Service headquarters on I Street, where she worked as an attorney. Since she started... She usually went into the office for a couple of hours on the weekend. She never liked starting a brand new work week without completely finishing everything that needed to get done the following week. Instead, she wanted to start each week fresh. So to ensure that everything got done, she would usually pop into the office for a couple of hours either on Saturday or Sunday. And Saturday, January 9th, 1999, was no different. After she got some work done at the office on I Street, she took the metro to the Pentagon City Mall. She needed to return a few items that she had bought a couple of days earlier. After the stop at the mall, she met up with a few friends at the Zando Coffee Shop, a local coffee shop only a few blocks away from the basement apartment she shared with her brother. But there was something noticeably off about Joyce, according to her friends. Joyce didn't seem like her cheerful and happy self that morning. According to her friends, she seemed a little tired. But her friends simply chalked it up to her working too much. They knew that she always put in crazy hours at work and even went on the weekends. So they simply thought that maybe she had an even busier week at work than usual, and that's why she didn't really seem like herself that day. Joyce also said that she was getting over a head cold. So on top of being tired, probably a little bit overworked, she wasn't feeling that great. 
After Joyce and her girlfriends finished their coffees, they left the shop. First, they dropped off Joyce's friend Patty at her apartment. Then Joyce and the other girlfriends spent the afternoon in Friendship Heights, an area of Northwest Washington, D.C. After watching the movie A Civil Action, they all went back to DuPont Circle for dinner. Everything seemed normal throughout the movie and dinner, and Joyce seemed to be in a better mood. After dinner, around 8.30 p.m., Joyce told her friends she was tired and ready to call it a night. She said she wanted to get back to her apartment by at least 9 o'clock because she needed to call a friend who lived across the country in San Francisco, California. She said her friend was starring in a theater production that night and wanted to wish her friend good luck before the show started. So Joyce's friend Kathy offered to give her a ride back to her apartment. But on the way back, Joyce asked her friend to make one quick stop at a Starbucks so that she could grab a cup of tea. After they stopped at the Starbucks, Joyce told her friend Kathy that she would walk the rest of the way home. Her apartment was only four blocks away from the Starbucks, so it would only take a few minutes. But Kathy told Joyce she didn't mind. She was okay driving her the four blocks all the way back to her apartment. But Joyce said no. She was already nice enough to drive her from dinner to the Starbucks, and her apartment was only a couple blocks away. So after Kathy said goodbye to Joyce at the Starbucks, she drove away, and Joyce started walking home, but she never made it to her apartment. When Roger woke up on Sunday morning, he first noticed that Joyce didn't come home the night before, but he didn't overthink this. Joyce would sometimes stay overnight at a friend's house, so he figured that's what she did. So he didn't worry about Joyce until later that night. On Sunday afternoon, a couple walking in Anacostia Park, just a few blocks away, saw something on the ground that captured their attention. It was an identification card an identification card for the Immigration and Naturalization Service in downtown, and the card belonged to Joyce Chang. Once Joyce still wasn't home by nighttime, Roger knew this was starting to look strange. If Joyce had stayed at a friend's house on Saturday night, she would have been home by now. She had work early the following day, so he didn't think that she would stay out two nights without returning back to the apartment, at least for a little bit. Plus, he hasn't heard from her since waking up on Saturday morning, which was also completely out of character. Without checking in, she wasn't known to be gone for almost two full days. By Monday afternoon, Roger decided to call Joyce's office. Maybe someone at work knew where she was or where she was staying. But when he called the office, he was shocked that none of her coworkers had heard from her since Saturday afternoon and she hadn't shown up to work that morning. Roger knew that it was one thing for Joyce to spend the weekend away somewhere, but it was an entirely different thing for her to skip work without telling anyone. And by Tuesday, Roger called the Washington, D.C. police and reported her missing. Over the next two weeks, local Washington, D.C. police officers and the FBI searched for Joyce. Since she was a federal employee, the FBI took over as the lead agency in the investigation. But even with all of this manpower, they had no idea where to focus their search. All they knew was that she was last seen at the Starbucks, about four blocks away from the apartment. 
But by that point, she could be anywhere. She might not even be in Washington, D.C. anymore. As the investigators were about to devise a search plan, they received a tip. The couple who found Joyce's work ID card while walking through Anacostia Park the day after she disappeared recognized Joyce's photo on the news. By that point, every local news station was covering Joyce's disappearance. So as soon as the couple saw the news coverage, they recognized the woman. The couple had already returned the ID card to the police on Sunday when they found it. But whoever worked at the police station simply put the ID card in the lost and found and didn't realize that it had any connection to Joyce's case. But as soon as the couple saw Joyce's photo on the news, they immediately picked up the phone and called the police. They said the ID card that they had turned over a couple days ago belonged to the missing girl. So the police and FBI knew they had to focus their search on the park where her ID card was found. As soon as dozens of investigators got to the park, they started looking for any sign of Joyce. They knew her ID card was there, so what else might they find? After only a few minutes of searching this area of Anacostia Park, they found several other of her items, including her apartment keys, a Blockbuster video card, a Safeway grocery card, and a pair of gloves. Later, they found the clothes that Joyce was last seen wearing, a green coat. But there was something very eerie about the coat. It wasn't in the same condition that Joyce wore it on Saturday evening when she was last seen. Instead, it had a large tear down the back like it had been ripped off of her. After finding almost all of Joyce's personal belongings, the police and FBI continued to focus their search on the area. They knew they also had to be close to finding Joyce if they found all of her personal items in the area, and hopefully she was still alive. Investigators combed the Anacostia River for any clues. At the time of the search, the river was wide but shallow. It was no more than about 20 feet deep down the middle, so it wasn't difficult for investigators to search. They also brought in helicopters to search the river from the air and dogs trained to find cadavers. But they couldn't find any sign of Joyce anywhere. After almost an entire day of searching the river, the rescue divers took a break to rethink the situation. After hours of searching the shallow water, they had become convinced she wasn't in the water. They were about to call it quits for the day when a helicopter flying above saw something. The pilots of the helicopters radioed to the officers down on the ground that they had spotted something that looked like a body about 100 yards away from the divers. They said it was a large object floating on the water's surface. The officers quickly scurried to that area and discovered a badly decomposed body. But it wasn't Joyce. It couldn't be her because the body was a male. And it had been in the water much longer than Joyce had been missing. He had been probably dead for several weeks, if not months. Once investigators pulled the man from the river, they got to work identifying him. Several days later, he was identified as 25-year-old Wrigley Tyrone Pleasance. Even to this day, the Washington, D.C. police and FBI have no idea what happened to him or how he ended up dead in the river. 
The best the medical examiner could say was that he probably drowned and listed his death as undetermined. According to police reports, his mother had reported him missing in the fall of that year, but that was it. They had no idea what he was doing in the Washington, D.C. area because he wasn't from there. He had basically no business being there. But all investigators could determine at that point was that he wasn't Joyce Chang. The discovery of Wrigley Pleasant's body was good for investigators. It was almost like a relief. They would have much rather found a quote-unquote John Doe in the water than someone like Joyce Chang, as awful as that sounds. From a victim's standpoint, Joyce was as bad as it could get. She was young, beautiful, well-educated, and a federal employee. Her story was straight out of a horror film. She was last seen walking down the street in her neighborhood, just blocks away from her apartment. Then she suddenly disappears off the face of the earth, and no one knows what happened to her. Hey, Forensic Tales listeners, Courtney here. Do you hate listening to ads? Well, you can listen to every single episode of this show ad-free through Patreon, starting for just $3 a month. And what's great? You don't have to change how you listen. You can still enjoy ad-free episodes of Forensic Tales through most podcast apps. As a patron, you'll also get other great perks, like weekly bonus episodes, This is where I give you my reaction to each week's story that I don't share in regular episodes. But more importantly, your support means I can continue to deliver high-quality weekly true crime stories. Don't forget, Forensic Tales is just a one-woman show. If you're interested in learning more, go to patreon.com slash forensictales. That's patreon.com slash Forensic Tales. There's also a link in the show notes. Now, back to the episode. Over the next three months, while the FBI continued to search for Joyce, her family and friends started organizing weekly candlelight visuals for her. At first, only her family and friends showed up, but then they became much bigger. Total strangers who had never even met her before started showing up. People from other areas outside of Washington, D.C. came. They didn't know Joyce personally, but she quickly became part of people's lives and families. She became your sister, your daughter, even your friend. So everyone started coming together in hopes that they would finally get some answers. But for weeks, the answers didn't come. One of the most influential people who helped keep Joyce's story on the newspaper's front page was her younger brother, Roger. If not for Roger, Joyce's story might have become yesterday's news. At first, the story got a lot of attention. But like many cases of disappearances, the stories begin to fade. A story about a missing person that once made front page news would eventually fall off people's radar. But Roger was determined to not let that happen. For weeks on end, he kept Joyce's story in the media and on the front page of the news. He knew that the more attention his sister's case got, the more people would be out there looking for her. He knew someone had to know something, anything. Joyce didn't just simply disappear off the face of the earth. Someone had to know what happened to her after her friend dropped her off at the Starbucks that night. For weeks, 
Roger and the rest of Joyce's family pleaded with the public, asking anyone with information to come forward. Fox's America's Most Wanted television show aired an episode almost entirely about her disappearance. After the episode aired, a few calls came in, but none led anywhere, and the investigation seemed to be at a standstill. Over the next three months, the police, FBI, and Joyce's family searched around the clock for her. They expanded their search from the Anacostia Park to several other areas throughout Washington, D.C. She couldn't have gone far if all of her personal belongings were in the park. At least, that's what investigators thought. Finally, after three entire months of relentless searching, there was a big break in the case. But it wasn't what everyone had hoped for. Over 12 weeks after Joyce was last seen on January 9th, a person riding a canoe in the Potomac River saw something unusual floating in the water. This location was about eight miles downstream from where Joyce's personal items were found weeks earlier. As he paddled closer, he quickly realized it was a body, a body of a badly decomposed female. Everyone's heart sank at the thought that the woman might be Joyce Chang. The body had been in the water for several weeks, possibly months. So the investigators weren't able to make an immediate identification as to who this woman was. The only thing they could actually tell was that she was an adult female. Other than that, not much of her remains were left or identifiable. So her body was sent to the medical examiner's office to see if forensic testing could be done to help figure out her identity. The medical examiner took a DNA sample from the body and submitted it for testing. The DNA was also compared to Joyce's family, who had also agreed to submit their DNA for comparison. The entire process took a little over two weeks, and when the results came back, there was a match. It was Joyce. Twelve weeks after she disappeared, Joyce's body was finally found in the river. Her body had floated downstream about eight miles away from where all of her personal belongings had been found just weeks earlier. But investigators had no idea what happened to her because her body was so badly decomposed. In most cases, bodies of water typically keep the body at lower temperatures, leading to slower decomposition than compared to being on land. But once the body is removed from the water, it experiences a significantly increased decomposition rate compared to bodies that aren't in water. But Many factors can affect body decomposition in water, like the depth or the temperature of the water. Water currents can also play a factor. In many bodies of water, there's also wildlife and animals that you have to deal with. And sometimes animals get to the human remains before being discovered or pulled from the water. But in Joyce's case, the medical examiner couldn't determine much about what happened to her. Despite being in the water, she had likely been there the entire time she was missing. So although the cold water might have slowed the decomposition rate, she had been in the water for a long time, which meant determining a manner or a cause of death was almost impossible. When Joyce's body was pulled from the river, she had no hair left on the top of her head, another sign that she had been in the water likely since her disappearance three months earlier. 
There was also no visible injuries or signs of trauma to her body. Had she been assaulted, strangled, or shot? No one, including the medical examiner, could say for sure. They found nothing on her body suggesting a possible cause of death. They also couldn't say whether this was a homicide or something else. With no visible signs of injury or trauma, who's to say foul play was involved? Was it possible that Joyce simply decided to walk away from her life and commit suicide? Maybe the constant pressures at work were starting to take a toll on her, and she decided that enough was enough, and she chose to end her life that night instead of returning home. When Joyce joined the Immigration and Naturalization Service, the U.S. was in a turmoil over its immigration policies and laws. The 1996 immigration bill had recently been passed, which was inherently tough on immigrants. And as a member of the department's legal team, Joyce was one of the people in charge of enforcing this immigration bill. So was the pressure of this job a little bit too much? But does that theory really make sense, though? What reason did Joyce really have to commit suicide? Sure, she was constantly swamped at work, but did that mean she was suicidal and she disappeared on her own? Over one month after Joyce's body was discovered, the medical examiner announced that the body was too badly decomposed for them to determine a cause of death. They wouldn't rule either a suicide or homicide. They also couldn't rule out that this was possibly a death by misadventure case, basically an accident. They simply said that they didn't know what happened to her. It could have been anything, essentially. So her official cause of death was listed as undetermined. But Joyce's family completely disagreed with this. They knew Joyce wasn't suicidal and she would have never taken her own life. In the weeks and months leading up to her disappearance, she showed no signs of being suicidal. By all accounts, she was happy and had a long and bright future ahead of her. At only 28 years old, she was a high-powered attorney with a federal government living in Washington, D.C. Why would she suddenly commit suicide? Well, according to Joyce's family, the answer to that question was simple. She wouldn't. Without an official cause of death, investigators felt there was nothing more to do. And despite her death being classified as, quote, undetermined, the case went cold. Not even the forensic evidence could point to anything. Over the next two years, there was an insane amount of speculation and theories about the case. There was a rumor that she might have been kidnapped by people running an Asian prostitution ring, and the kidnapping went wrong, and that's how she ended up in the water. There was another theory that she might have been kidnapped from Starbucks. One news outlet reported that one of the employees working at the Starbucks that night recalled seeing Joyce sitting inside the restaurant with a blonde woman. The employee allegedly said that Joyce and the woman sat in the Starbucks talking and drinking tea for about an hour together, but This was only a far-fetched theory. There's been no evidence suggesting that Joyce did anything other than follow her original plan that night, which was to grab a cup of tea from Starbucks and then walk about four blocks back to her apartment. Plus, the friend who dropped her off at the Starbucks that night 
said that Joyce never mentioned anything about meeting up with this so-called blonde woman that this employee was talking about. So these wild theories all led back to one question. What happened to Joyce Chang? In May 2001, Joyce's case was back in the spotlight two years after her disappearance, but not for the reasons you might expect. Her case started to reach mainstream media again because of the Chandra Levy case. Chandra's case instantly drew renewed media interest in Joyce's case. To many people, the two cases had a lot of similarities that simply couldn't be ignored. Some even said the similarities were too chilling to dismiss. Chandra and Joyce lived in Washington, D.C., only a few blocks away from each other. Chandra was 24 when she disappeared. Joyce was only a few years older at 28. They both had internships with federal government agencies. They also shared similar physical features. Both women were young, attractive, petite, and dark-haired. So many people wondered if the two disappearances could be connected. Were both women killed by the same person? And could there be other victims in the Washington, D.C. area? Maybe a serial killer was on the loose. Five months before Joyce's disappearance, another woman from the same Washington, D.C. neighborhood disappeared. 28-year-old Christine Merzian. Christine was walking home from a barbecue around 10.30 p.m., when she mysteriously vanished. Her partially nude body was found several days later, leading the authorities to believe she died a brutal death. Her body was covered in blunt force trauma injuries, and there was evidence that she had been sexually assaulted. Like Joyce, Christine was also the daughter of immigrant parents and had moved to Washington, D.C. to pursue her career. All three women, Joyce Chang, Chandra Levy, and Christine Merzian, lived in the same area of Washington, D.C. They were all about the same height and had brown hair. All three were also interns at some point in their lives. The Washington, D.C. police and FBI were quick to discount this theory. Instead of letting the public speculate about a possible serial killer on the run, they publicly said they believed Joyce committed suicide. They said they found nothing to suggest this was foul play throughout their investigation. But again, does this make sense? Why would someone without a documented history of depression do that? Why would she throw all of her belongings in one location and possibly kill herself in another? And what about the torn jacket? Remember, When the authorities found the green coat Joyce was wearing when she disappeared, it was completely ripped down the back. And what about the location? The river was well over five miles from her apartment. This presents another big problem with this theory. Joyce didn't own a car. So did she walk five miles by herself only to commit suicide? According to Joyce's family, this evidence points to homicide, not suicide. For the next decade, wild theories and speculation about Joyce's story swirled around mainstream media and the true crime community. Was her case connected to Chandra Levy's case or Christine's case? Or was this a tragic suicide? Unfortunately, without solid forensic evidence, the best people could do was wonder and speculate. And that's exactly what most people did 
until 10 years later. By 2011, the police and FBI seemed to change their stance about what they thought happened to Joyce. Instead of saying they thought this was a suicide, the Washington, D.C. police held a press conference where they publicly addressed the issue of suicide. Years later, they finally said that they didn't think Joyce killed herself. Instead, they thought she was a victim and had been murdered. Here's the reason why they changed their story. In May 2011, Washington, D.C. police and the FBI identified two possible suspects in Joyce's disappearance. One of them was in a Maryland prison serving time for an unrelated crime, and the other was living in the country of Guyana. But when the police were pressed about why criminal charges hadn't been filed against either one of these men, they didn't have much of a story. The guy in prison is already serving a life sentence for an unrelated crime, and the other one lives in Guyana, a country with no extradition laws with the U.S. So even if officials wanted to arrest him in connection with Joyce's death, they couldn't, unless he returned to the U.S. on his own, which seems extremely unlikely. So they can't just go and arrest him. Who exactly are these two men? Well, some people believe they are Stephen Allen and Neil Joaquin. Both Stephen Allen and Neil Joaquin lived in the Washington, D.C. area around the time of Joyce's disappearance. And both men were known to law enforcement because they worked together as a team robbing people on the streets. They usually approached someone who was alone. They would take their purse or their wallet and then simply run off. But investigators believe Joyce Chang was different. Instead of just robbing her for money, the two men abducted her after she left the Starbucks and started walking the four blocks back to her apartment. After she was abducted, the men drove Joyce to the Anacostia River. But what happened after that? Well, here's one theory that the TV host John Walsh talked about shortly after the police gave this press conference. John Walsh believes that after the men took Joyce to the river, they only planned on robbing her, at least initially, like they did with everyone else. But John Walsh believes Joyce maybe tried to run away from the men and slipped on ice, causing her to fall into the river where she ultimately drowned. That could explain why all of her personal belongings, like her apartment keys and the grocery store cards, were found on the ground. It could also explain why her green coat was ripped down the back. Maybe she struggled with the two men after they robbed her and tore the jacket. Then, once she ran away, she accidentally slipped on some ice that would have been on the ground at that time of the year and fell into the water. But neither the FBI or the Washington, D.C. police confirmed or denied the story. This seemed to just be a possible theory about what happened. They also never filed criminal charges against either man. One of them is currently in federal prison, serving a life sentence, while the other one's believed to be living in a country where there are no extradition laws with the U.S. So it seems very unlikely that at this point, either one of them will be arrested or charged with anything in connection to Joyce's case and her family might not ever receive the justice or closure that they deserve. 
Following her death, a scholarship was created in her memory. The Joyce Chang Memorial Scholarship supports one student each year with an internship at the Asian American Justice Center in Washington, D.C., a cause that her family believes would have been very important to Joyce. A second scholarship award was also created at Georgetown University Law Center, where Joyce attended law school. That scholarship supports, quote, a Knight student with a demonstrable commitment to public service, end quote. Another cause that would have been important to her. The other two cases of missing women from Washington, D.C. also have updates. Nearly seven years after Chandra Levy's body was found, the police charged Ingmar Guandique with her murder. He was sentenced to 60 years in prison, but in 2016, new developments in the case led to all charges being dropped against Guandique. In the case of Christine Merzian, the other murdered Washington, D.C. woman, Gall's Daniel Warwick was arrested in connection to her case in November 2019. Warwick, a.k.a. the Potomac River Rapist, was also arrested for 10 other sexual assaults of other Washington, D.C. women. But justice wasn't served in her case either. That's because the man now known as the Potomac River Rapist died in prison in November 2022 before his case went to trial. Today, the Washington, D.C. police and FBI consider Joyce's case closed, although no arrests have been made. And it's unclear exactly what happened to her. Is John Walsh's theory true? Did the two men abduct and rob her? only to have her accidentally slip and drown in the river? Or did something else happen to her that cold January night? Unfortunately, there are still so many unanswered questions, not even forensic evidence can explain. Because Joyce's body was so badly decomposed, we don't know how she died. We don't have a cause or a manner of death. And we may never know full, complete story. To share your thoughts on the story, be sure to follow the show on Instagram and Facebook. To find out what I think about the case, sign up to become a patron at patreon.com slash forensic tales. After each episode, I release a bonus episode where I share my personal thoughts and opinions about the case. Don't forget to subscribe to Forensic Tales so you don't miss an episode. We release a new episode every Monday. If you love the show, consider leaving us a positive review or tell friends and family about us. You can also help support the show through Patreon. Thank you so much for joining me this week. Please join me next week. We'll have a brand new case and a brand new story to talk about. Until then, remember, not all stories have happy endings. Forensic Tales is a Rockefeller audio production. The show is written and produced by me, Courtney Fretwell Ariola. For a small monthly contribution, you can help create new compelling cases for the show, help fund research, and assist with production and editing costs. For supporting the show, you'll become one of the first to listen to new ad-free episodes and snag exclusive show merchandise not available anywhere else. To learn about how you can support the show, head over to our Patreon page patreon.com slash forensic tales 
or simply click the support link in the show notes. You can also support the show by leaving a positive rating with a review or telling friends and family about us. Forensic Tales is a podcast made possible by our Patreon producers, Tony A., Nicole L., David B., Paula G., Nicole G., Christine B., Karen D., Sherry A., Elizabeth M., Lisa S., Nicola, Nora, Roberto R., Jerry, Gary M., and Brian W. If you'd like to become a producer of the show, head over to our Patreon page or send me an email at Courtney at ForensicTales.com to find out how you can become involved. For a complete list of sources used in this episode, please visit ForensicTales.com. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next week. Until then, remember, not all stories have happy endings.